Welcome back to the first Monday recap episode of Musketeer Report podcast. Paul Fritschner, Rick Roaring with you. And it's time to talk about Xavier's first week of the season. Couple wins, Rick, to get the Musketeer season started. Season opening win over Morgan State, 96 to 73. Then the win, 86 to 64 over Montana on Friday night. Two games last week. One more tune-up game this week on Fairfield. It'll probably be today, as all of you listening are listening to it tonight, really, on Tuesday night, a 9 p.m., 9 o'clock tip-off. Nothing like 9 p.m. against Fairfield at Cintas. Uh, before the Indiana game, a consensus top 15 team right now in the country. They moved up a spot in the polls today, number 12. Just an incredible atmosphere. That's going to be on Friday night against Indiana. We'll talk more about that later on in the pod. Let's first recap this past week, Rick. Musketeers played incredibly well offensively, got to see some new faces, got to see guys like Sule Boom, the UTEP transfer, come in and make some plays, made four threes in the season opener. Quieter in the second game, but that opened up the door for Kiki Tandy to make four threes in that game. And you got to see Cam Craft. You got to see Desmond Claude. They look like freshmen, but Desmond Claude got more run to his game and, and and more experience under his belt to see if now you're going to turn a corner to Indiana, you're going to turn a corner to uh, the Portland tournament next week, PK 85. And all of a sudden you're going to be playing Duke, Gonzaga, West Virginia, Florida, uh, some real tests here coming up right away. Um, and looking back at this last week, Xavier looked a whole lot better offensively than they did defensively. So let's start. With the good, let's start with the offense. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I'm seeing talked about a lot when it comes to the the message board and just other conversations I've had is how much of this is about changes, upgrades in the schematics, the system, the coaching, the discipline, the players having more confidence, and how much of it is playing against a weak schedule to start. And uh, I think that's a fair question. I think it's a legit question, and it's one I still have. I think there are a few things that are noticeably different, and it doesn't mean that they will ultimately end up being better against top competition. But for right now, it looks very good. It's working, and it is different. The first is the amount of times that they are getting the ball inside, force-feeding the paint, um, and, and you can kind of tie that in with the lack of threes that they're shooting. They're among the bottom in the country uh, outside the top 300 in terms of three pointers attempted so far this season. So uh, I, I think those are a couple of the most noticeable things is how often they're getting the ball inside and, and getting fouled or getting the ball into Jack Nungy for an easy bucket or Zach Fremantle for an easy bucket and the lack of threes overall. That's been really a huge difference. And then coinciding with that, another one I think a lot of fans have noticed and appreciated is the discipline that we've seen on the offensive end. Guys understanding their roles a little bit better or maybe having a little bit more clearly defined roles. And with that has come, you know, guys like Jerome Hunter and Zach Fremantle not attempting a single three through the first two games. I think had you asked Xavier fans what they wanted to see going forward this year, that probably would have been tops on the list. After watching a year where Jason Carter struggled so much shooting from the outside and just continued to launch and launch and launch, and last year where you kind of had a similar thing going on with Jerome Hunter, and uh, you had Adam Kunkel kind of taking some wild shots throughout the year and and all of that. So I think those are probably the, the biggest differences that I would start with. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean it ends up being better against top 
top competition, although I think we all believe it is headed that way. But it's definitely a noticeable change from what we saw the last few seasons. Yeah, and I thought even in the season opener, the games kind of blend together. But I think it was in the first game against Morgan State. You saw Zach Freeman get get the ball at the top of the key. And instead of just settling for that three that we've seen him settle for over the last few years, you give the shot fake and you drive in. You either get, I don't remember how the possession ended, but the point is you're not settling for that three. You're not rotating the ball around the perimeter, chucking something up, uh, you know, fade away three at the end of the shot clock. You're working the ball around for a better shot and giving that high low action that we saw a few times in, in both games. And uh, it, it was a, it was a good way, an inspiring way for Xavier to start the season offensively. Well, and with Zach specifically, how about the passing? that he's added yeah. to his game. I mean, he has, what, seven assists through the first two games. And uh, again, some of that is because of all the high-low actions. He and Jack Nungy are finding each other a lot on, on high-lows or even sometimes just like passes across the blocks to each other. And Sean Miller talked a lot in the post-game after Montana about those two guys playing well together and passing between each other big to big a lot. Uh, but there's been more than just that. I think in, in the Montana game, there was a specific play I recall where Zach had the ball in a transition instance, and he made a nice pass ahead to one of the guards that led to a bucket or a foul, uh, whatever happened there. But yeah, I think, I think you've seen Zach change his game a lot on the offensive end and There's always been the good days with Zach, the days where he he gives you a lot of production and he's fun to watch and he can get buckets for you offensively. But with him being a little bit more efficient and eliminating some of the extra stuff like the heat check threes and and some of the turnovers or just being maybe a little bit more selfish offensively or uh, not finding his teammates and making plays for them and, and, and allowing them to play off of him, that has definitely been a big benefit to his game and ultimately the team as a result. And it looks like he's been locked in, right? We it was well well reported what happened with with Zach and the offseason leading right up to the season. He was suspended for about a week, and you're thinking, okay, what kind of mental state is Zach Fremantle in? Is he buying into this system? Is he buying into the new coaching staff? Is he going to be locked in, or is this going to be a year where game to game you don't really know what you're going to get out of him? And look, through early returns and, and two games against lesser tier opponents. He's looked apart. Three assists in the season opener, four assists in game two. If you go by Ken Palm, he's a Ken Palm MVP in game number two, 18 points. He leads all scorers in that game. He's eight for 11, doesn't attempt a three, like you said. And he pulls down three rebounds, four assists, has two blocks, too. That was Xavier's only two blocks in a game against Montana. So he's looked a whole lot better than maybe some people were worried that he was going to look a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And, and look, those two teams didn't have anybody that could guard Zach Fremantle. So factor that in. But I think, again, the big part that I see in it is eliminating some of those lesser efficient parts of his games, the chucking some heat check jumpers and not playing as well within the system in terms of passing and moving the ball and turning the ball over a little bit more combined with a more consistent effort on the defensive end and rebounding. Now, are there still issues for Zach one-on-one at times defensively? Absolutely. We've already seen those, but he's also been praised by Sean Miller in the post game after each game for 
the defensive job he did specifically against Montana, their best player was their forward. And in the first half, Xavier was trying to dig down on that player more and uh, get him to give up the ball. It led to a lot of kick out open threes. So in the second half, they basically left Zach one-on-one against him. And Sean Miller really liked the job he did, at least according to his post-game press conference. So Again, I, I think if you get a more consistent effort out of Zach on the defensive end and the rebounding side of things, and he plays with a consistently high motor, then you're going to take the returns from Zach Fremantle more often than not. Yeah, exactly. And defensively, though, we, we talked about it. Xavier had some issues defensively in both games, and especially to start the game. It was weird. It was a tale of two halves in both games defensively, where Xavier didn't come out of the gate all that strong defensively in game one, and it was the same way in game two. And Sean talked about that after the game in a press conference on Friday night where he said, hey, look, you go into the halftime locker room, we got to lock in defensively. We, we got to put more effort into the defensive side of the floor. They did that. And it was the same story in the exhibition, too, if, if you think even back to that uh, a few days uh, before the season started to where, for some reason, straight out of the gate, Musketeers aren't as locked in as they are in halftime once they've settled in a little bit. Well, and I, I think there are some limitations to what they're capable of defensively, and I think you're seeing that. They are not a great defensive team right now, and I don't know how much upside there is. And so... Were they much better in the second halves of those games? Yes, but I think there's also a certain aspect of it of wearing the other team down and overwhelming them with your athleticism and size to some extent. I don't know that you're going to have the same success and just flip that switch at halftime against Big East talent or Indiana when you play them on Friday. So that part, I'm still interested to see what happens going forward because you know, they have too many guys that I think are just getting beat in one-on-one situations. And then in addition to that, there are some of the typical early season breakdowns you see from a team on the defensive end, like a a guy not rotating, something not being communicated properly. Somebody forgets what type of ball screen defense they're supposed to be doing on a certain action because some of this is new and they've changed some of those things. So there's a lot of moving parts there on the defensive end, but I think the bigger concern, it, it boils down to, how many guys that do you have that just aren't very good one-on-one defenders and have trouble keeping their man in front of them? And my concern for the Xavier team is the answer is a, a few too many. Yeah. Kiki Tandy played exceptionally well offensively in the second game uh, on Friday night against Montana. Played his spot well on Monday too, only made the one shot. But still, like I said in the post-game press conference, I asked Sean, he filled a spot and it seemed like, yeah, he, he played well in practice, got rewarded with a start, started in both games and he scored the ball. He shot the ball, made four threes on Friday night, but got beat defensively, too. And you mentioned it to me right away when we were sitting there talking about it. He gets cut, you know, back cut right right away in game number one. And th- those are the little things that you're looking at for Kiki, where it's not it, it wasn't exposed as much here in the first two games when you're not playing Big East level competition, but those are the things you're looking at when you're going to play a Indiana or a Florida or a Gonzaga. Yeah, I was a little surprised when I watched the Morgan State game back how excited people were with Kiki's play because and why is it a big deal that he got caught beat on a backdoor cut? Because it's like that's one play. What does that matter? Well, it's one of those attention to detail things that he's always seemed to struggle with on the defensive end. You knew that they ran a Princeton offense all week leading up to that game. The only thing the coaching staff had been telling 
these guys on the defensive end was do not get back cut. Do not get back cut. If they dribble at you, you're a back cuts coming. And Kiki was the first guy to get beat by one. So is it the end of the world? No, but it just kind of goes back to the issues he's had on the defensive end in the past, which is attention to detail within a game plan and uh, keeping, well, just keeping his man with him, I guess has been an issue as well. So there have been a lot of things to like about Kiki's performances in both games. I think the first game people were a little high on him just because he looked like he was solid enough and he belonged out there. The second game, he showed you what he can bring offensively, which we always knew. I mean, that's not a surprise to see him knock down multiple three pointers against a team like that. Um, And then I thought there was probably more solid play overall from him on the defensive end. Although, you know, there are still times where he's just, getting beat off the dribble or he falls asleep within the game plan and misses on an attention to detail thing like that backdoor cut that we were talking about. So I think the one thing that people forget is Kiki has done all of this before. You know, last year he was injured to start the season, so we didn't get to see it in those bye games. But two years ago, the year where he kind of lost his job or spot in the rotation, he played really well in the early bye games. And then when the competition increased, things kind of changed for him. So am am I impressed with what we've seen from him so far? Do I think this could be different? Absolutely. He's lost the weight. He seems like he's trying to buy in and do what's asked of him defensively, but I don't think it's like he wasn't trying two years ago either. You know, so has, has that experience helped? I would assume so. Has he gotten better? I think so. And is does he have a coaching staff who's doing a great job with him and all of those things? Yes. But the jury is still out on what Kiki is going to mean to this team, I think. So now let's let's pose this one to you with Adam Kunkel when he comes back and he's fully healthy. That's his starting spot, right? I think it it is his spot overall. Like he is higher in the pecking order than Kiki overall. Like he was all preseason. I think if you ask the coaches, honestly, they would tell you Kunkel's our, our top guy at the shooting guard spot. But the discrepancy isn't huge. And. With the way Kiki has started the season, especially shooting in that second game, I think you probably leave him there for a little bit longer and maybe wait until uh, something changes in terms of he has a a bad performance or he gets cold from the outside. Or maybe it's just a night where Kunkel completely goes off and you say, "Okay, we got he's healthy now. Let's get him back into the starting lineup. And it looks a little obvious, but. I think this narrative and the storyline and everything played out perfectly for the coaching staff and that they wanted to, to give Kiki some love for all the work that he's put in in the preseason and, and him losing the weight and him really buying into everything they asked. And it just so happened that Kunkel got hurt right before the season opener. So they were able to do that in the form of good, giving him two starts right off the bat. Uh, I would expect him to start again tomorrow night. So I think that worked out well for them and they can kind of just let it play out because it's not really hurting them much to have Kiki starting over Adam Kunkel when they're kind of going to platoon at that spot more than likely anyway. Yeah, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about Colby Jones had 15 points in the season opener. And then on Friday night against Montana had 12. He was six for six from the line. What's impressed you about Colby Jones? There is one thing that stands out more than anything else. And maybe if you look at like all the advanced analytics and numbers and everything else for the Xavier team so far through two games, the best or most positive sign, I think, for this team, period is the fouls drawn rate for Colby Jones. He is way up there, uh, top 40 in the country, 
9.1 fouls drawn per 40 minutes right now is what he's averaging, which is just an extraordinary rate. It's it's really good. And and by the way, Jack Nungy is at 6.6 and Zach Fremantle is at 5.5. Those are very good numbers, too, in terms of a whole season. What's um, what's a, what's a good what's a good number for people that might not know that number? Looking back to last year, as I pull up Ken Palm right now. Fouls drawn last year, the leader in the country was Vanderbilt's Scottie Pippen, who Xavier saw in a preseason exhibition yeah. or secret scrimmage, and then they saw in the NIT. He averaged 7.8 fouls drawn per 40. So um, that's that's obviously very high. It drops off pretty quickly from there into the sixes. And then, you know, by the time you're getting into the 40s or 50s, guys are are around five fouls per per draw drawn per but game. Still, so, that, that puts into context what Colby's doing with nine early in the year. Yeah, it's it's crazy good. So we wanted to see him become more aggressive. And I think especially after that first half against Morgan State, where he he oh, and really going back to the exhibition too. first half of the exhibition, he wasn't as aggressive um, first half against Morgan State. He wasn't as aggressive. He has still managed to get to the free throw line an awful lot and put pressure on the defense, picking up fouls on them. That gives me a good indication that he's been attacking enough, and that's exactly what you wanted to see out of him coming into this season. And I think when, <laughs> like, looking at the aggressiveness and how much we've talked about it, okay, can you put it into action? And to draw that many fouls early on, all all around the court for Xavier, being aggressive around the rim, driving to the basket, getting these guys to the foul line, and then converting at the foul line too. They've done that, which I know is music to a lot of Xavier's fans ears, 14 for 19 from the free throw line on Friday night and 27 for 36, just an outrageous number on Monday night. Yeah. And the other thing that I love about Colby's performance too, is the assist rate. If you look at his 37.6, Percent. I mean, that probably doesn't mean anything to a lot of people, but if you're a Ken Palm freak, you'll get it. But just understand that he's got a really high assist rate right now. He's setting up his teammates, making them better. And if you look at Xavier as a team, they rank eighth in the country in terms of how many of their field goals are assisted. 73.4% of their field goals through the first two games have been assisted that tells me there is great ball movement, and I think that's been something that stand that's really stood out when you've been watching this team. And Sean's talked about that as post game pressers too. He's talked about how important that is distributing the ball, keeping the ball moving, and keeping the defense on their toes. And that's something that's so because you don't want things to get stagnant. You don't want it to end up in a spot where oh, we're going to take ten dribbles at the top of the key, nobody's going to do anything, and then now oh, there's six seconds left on the shot clock. Let's just settle for this three. And that had become a familiar sight, and you're not seeing that as much here in the first couple of games. Now, Xavier didn't shoot it all that well from three, but they got those two performances out of Sule Boom and out of Kiki Tandy to where one guy in each game, at least, stepped up to contribute. Yeah, I mean, 8 of 14 against Montana, three-point shooting, you'll take any day. The 5 of 14 isn't as impressive, especially when four of them came from one guy. But yeah. um, you can live with the way they're shooting the ball because they're not prioritizing shooting three-pointers the way they're playing yeah. this year. Now, will that work against teams that are bigger and more physical and can do a better job of keeping the ball out of the paint and keeping you from getting those high-low actions, especially if they know you're not a threat to shoot from the outside? 
Yeah. And that's been my concern with this team all along, starting in the offseason. But to this point, they have done a great job of really prioritizing playing to their strengths and getting to the free throw line a lot more and just limiting their three point attempts. Period. They are, you know, only 25% of their field goal attempts are coming from beyond the arc right now. And that's outside the top 300 in college basketball, which is great. This team really doesn't have the shooters to be taking a lot of threes. So I think that works out very well for them. One of the things, and this is switching gears a little bit, there's a few more players I want to talk about, but I don't want to forget to say this. One of the things I want some people listening, if you haven't listened or uh, haven't paid attention to it already in the first couple of games, is the leash on some of these players from Sean Miller. And I've noticed how quickly a change is made in the lineup when there's an errant pass out of bounds or somebody gets cut on, you know, like that, what we were talking about with Kiki Tandy, when something happens like that, how quickly there's a teaching moment out of the game. And maybe they come back in a couple minutes later. Yeah. It's funny how everyone sees those things differently, because I've also read that the difference between Sean and why he's so much better than Travis is because he's letting Kiki play through mistakes and same thing with Jerome and Travis didn't. So I don't know. I don't see much difference in that stuff. I think all coaches at this level get pretty mad when you make mistakes and pull you out. And I think we saw that last year too. Um, But everyone's kind of going to see that narrative to support their argument with whatever player they're talking about and whatever storyline they like. I think, I I think more so for me, Rick, being down there on the court and being right next to the benches and seeing everything from that angle and seeing how quickly, you know, decisions are made, things are happening. I'm, not necessarily that Kiki's going to go sit on the bench for 10 minutes and all of a sudden his game is over because he made one small mistake. But these little teaching moments here and there when you can tell something happened, somebody got, like I said, cut on, whatever it might be. And, hey, let's get out, let's recollect, and then let's let's move on and and play through it the next time. Yeah, he is not going to let them play a way that is not his style of basketball. He is going to hold yeah. them accountable and they're going to be required to play his style of basketball. And I, I think that's what you want out of any of any coach. And, and speaking of some of that accountability, uh, Jerome Hunter had a great opening night on Monday and then did not have such a great opening uh, Friday night game against Montana. Was held scoreless against Montana and picked up four fouls in nine minutes. Didn't didn't exactly inspire the confidence that you saw on Monday, Rick. Yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, kind of the similar issues we've seen from Jerome at times, just not being with it defensively, not being where he's supposed to be. And it seemed like uh, the coaching staff was pretty hard on him in this game. And I know there were a lot of shots of him, or I shouldn't say a lot, but there were a lot of people talking about the shots of him on the bench that were shown during the broadcast where I guess he was getting consoled by teammates and, and looked to be in tears. I don't know if you know any more about that, but I don't I don't know anything that happened. So for all I know, he could have gotten news about a relative or something like I I have no idea if that was related to the coaches riding him or not. Uh, But everyone that was watching at home seemed to think that was the case. So uh, if so, you know, that's that's kind of the way it's going to be. You know, Sean Miller is is a, a tough coach to play for in terms of accountability, like we just talked about. And I think if you asked his former players, they will tell you there are those moments where uh, you don't want to be on the wrong side of one of his tongue lashings. But then they'll also tell you he's one of the best coaches ever and they they loved playing for him. So uh, I would assume that's all just kind of the process of getting used to playing for Sean right now. 
Yeah, I don't know any more about what happened. In fact, I still haven't actually seen the clip, but I did get about four texts immediately after that clip got shown on the broadcast that I know something had to have happened, but nobody's been able to pull the replay up for me yet to to go back and find it or watch it. But the one thing that I was keeping in mind when I was reading those texts and I was just saying, hey, hey, look, I, I have no idea. I was at the opposite end of the court at the time when it happened. I didn't see anything. I, I don't know. But Jerome Hunter played for Archie at Indiana. Right. Like if Archie and Sean have talked about Jerome, which clearly, obviously they have. He's familiar with the Miller family and Sean's familiar with Jerome and, and what he was getting in that product. Absolutely. I mean, there's no coach in America other than Travis Steele and Archie Miller who had a better feel for Jerome Hunter's game and what he was going to be getting because Sean is obviously always aware of what's going on with Archie's teams and they talk and Right up until I would say about the time that Sean got the Xavier job, I think he and Travis would talk and he had a good idea of what was going on with Xavier's team as well. So, yeah, he knew what Jerome Hunter was capable of, what his weaknesses were, and uh, that's why he's tried to change his game and that's why he's going to continue to be hard on him. Um, But I think, you know, it's no surprise to see Jerome Hunter have an up and down performance in the first two games, play well in one play not well at all in the second and have his minutes limited. That's kind of what we expected from him coming in. And that's why, you know, there was reason to believe they needed to upgrade this roster in the off season. They didn't. And I think they still have enough, enough talent to, to reach their goals and, and make the NCAA tournament be where they want to be. But th- these are some of the hurdles you're going to have to overcome is things like inconsistent play from Jerome Hunter. Yeah. I want to hear your thoughts. Thoughts now, Rick, on the two freshmen, Desmond Claude, Cam Craft. Didn't see a ton out of Cam Craft in the first couple of games, so a little more out of Desmond Claude, but just kind of your overall thoughts, impressions, anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I think they looked like freshmen, certainly. Um, you know, Cam got uh, about a little under 15 minutes, I think, in each game and hasn't really gotten much of a chance to get off offensively. He's only shot one three in each game, I believe. So, yeah, I think it, in terms of him, we just haven't really seen much. He hasn't. He's just kind of been out there a little bit. He hasn't done anything negative for the most part. He hasn't done too much positive. He's had a bucket or two, um, but it, he's just getting his feet wet. With Desmond, he's obviously a more integral part this year because they need him at the point guard position to do some ball handling, and and he's playing about half the game. I think. He was in hyperspeed that first game against Morgan State. And in addition to that, you have a team that is playing full court pressure the entire game, changing up their looks on you, just trying to create chaos, essentially, and also fouling you a whole heck of a lot, which is is never easy when you're a freshman coming into your first game. So as he settled in, as that game went on, I thought he started to look a little bit better. And then the Montana game, he was very quiet early and I thought a little bit hesitant. But as the game wore on and he got a little bit more playing time as well. Well, I thought he, he looked better, and I think he's just his ascension is just going to be a, a straight line up and to the right. You know, I think it it is going to be yeah. continuous throughout the whole year. I don't think he's going to have many dips. I think he's just going to keep getting better and better as he continues to get more comfortable. Well, I think the thing that maybe Xavier fans are most excited about with this new coaching staff is development, right? You look at what Sean Miller has done with his players at Arizona and the NBA products that he's turned out. I think the development phase of this coaching staff, at least to me, is what makes me the most excited about what you could see over the next few years. Yeah, certainly. And Desmond Claude, you know, it gets it got so crazy there right up 
leading into yeah. preseason where people are like, oh, he's going to be gone to the NBA after next. Yeah, that's like, oh, I was, I was, I was, I was ready to put, I was ready to put my guy in the lottery with what I was reading like a week before the season. Right. So I think uh, some people were kind of we like tanking for Desmond Claude. Yeah. How crazy should expectations be? And I, I think now we're seeing he's still a freshman. Has he exceeded expectations to this point? Absolutely. Does he look like he's going to be a fantastic player down the line? Of course. But he is still a freshman right now, and he's a little bit raw in terms of his overall basketball experience. And he kind of just came into this size and athleticism and this level of play. I mean, he was not a well-known prospect a year and a half ago, even. So it's it's all happened pretty quickly for him. And I think uh, you're go- like I said, you're just going to continue to see him get better and better with each passing day. But I don't think you have an NBA lottery pick on your hands just quite yet. <laughs> All right, the last guy to talk about here before we move ahead toward Indiana, Sule Boom. UTEP transfer comes in as a great opening night, quieter on Friday, but a great opening night and a really good first impression in front of a fun Cintas crowd on Monday. Uh, your early impression of Sule Boom, Rick? He has been what you expected him to be for the most part, which is in the first game, he gave you that three-point shooting that you really need out of him, and that was a great sign. And then in the second game, he was more of a role player, but he piled up five assists and only had two turnovers. So um, are there some things that he can do better? Yes. Are there concerns on the defensive end? Definitely. I have major concerns about how he's going to guard some of the the better point guards in the Big East. Size-wise or skill-wise? Size more than anything. Size more than anything. But, I mean, it's not like he's keeping guys in front of him, and, and part of that is due to a lack of size and strength as well. Um, it's but- funny you say that. I was I was standing there watching that game going, how in the world? I mean, RJ Cole would eat this guy alive. He is. He's very thin. We'll see how it goes defensively, but offensively, I think he's he's looked pretty good to start the season and given you about what you would expect. But, again, he was already good at the Conference USA. Not good. He was great at the Conference USA level. I averaged like 19 points a game, got to the foul line all the time, shot really well from three-point range. So him playing well against the MIAC in the big sky is not a surprise at all. For him, you really have to wait to see how does he make the jump up in competition to the Big East. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, anything else about the roster, Rick, before we look ahead to Indiana this week? No, I think for maybe some of the more casual fans who hadn't been on the musketeerreport.com message boards, which, by the way, if you uh, if you're oh, listening yeah, to this podcast, that. let's and, do that. Yeah, because we keep <laughs> like having all these instances where people like find out that there's a site that exists to go with this podcast and they had no idea. I think part of that is like all the audience that Paul is bringing in, I guess. So I want to make it clear. If you go to musketeerreport.com, that's where we do a, a lot of Xavier coverage and there's a constant conversation going on. And I think I'm if you're in Gen Z, Rick, thank you. I appreciate that. We need we need it. <laughs> I think if you're a casual fan and you haven't been paying attention to the musketeerreport.com message boards all offseason, you may have had different expectations for how the post rotation was going to go. And Cesar Edwards was a guy that was starting to come along at the end of last year, gave them a little bit of an offensive spark off the bench at times late in the season. And I think people were hoping he was going to take a step forward this year and become a bigger part of the rotation. That clearly has not happened at all in the preseason. And to be quite honest with you, from what I've seen, it isn't close. Like between him and Deontay Miles, 
it is not close. Deontay was the clear next guy in line. And Deontay really hasn't gotten the type of playing time that you might have expected the backup center would get on this team because, you know, with with Jack Nunji returning and Zach Fremantle starting at the forward spot, you figured someone was going to have to be in line there to, to play some center minutes. And right now, the strategy has seemingly been more so to stagger those guys a little bit and use Jerome Hunter as the third front court rotation piece. Deontay Miles only played four minutes in that first game against Morgan State. He played 10 minutes in the second game against Montana, but uh, a lot of those minutes came when the game was a little bit more out of hand. So again, I think for right now, the rotation is going to be playing a little bit smaller when they take out one of Jack or Zach and you go with Jerome Hunter at the forward spot and, and slide the other big to the center spot. And that's probably how the rotation is going to to remain for most of the season, I would imagine. To be because to be quite honest, like Cesar wasn't close to cracking the rotation in the preseason. And I just don't know that it's clicked for Deontay enough to where he's going to be giving them big time minutes in a, a battle against Indiana or any of the big East teams. Sure. All right. Well, you said it, Indiana. Yeah, there's Fairfield on Tuesday night at nine o'clock. But I think by the time people are listening to this, that game will be right on the doorstep. You might be listening to this on the way to the Fairfield game. Yeah. And and that Fairfield game goes one of two ways. Either it goes like we expect it to go and they handle them just like they handled Montana and Morgan State and everything as well. And there's nothing to talk about. Or it goes poorly. And in that case, you probably don't want us talking about that either, because uh, (laughs) that would not be good. So, Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, so we move on to Indiana on Friday night. It's a Gavit game. And if you're wondering what a Gavit game is, it's the Big Ten, the Big East. Actually, as we record this right now, Penn State is beating Butler, I think, by 14 at the under four timeout of that game. Uh, it's the Big Ten and the Big East. It's the reason that Xavier played Ohio State last year and they're playing Indiana this year. I like the regional tie in of the last couple of years, Rick. I like that. The, I like that they're going with this with Ohio State and Indiana. Well, good. I'm glad they uh, are meeting your demands. Yeah, I mean, seriously, that's really all that right? matters. Oh, well, you know, somebody's looking out for me. I appreciate it. That's good. You know, it, you, know you, you get the Wisconsin and everything like let's let's get the regional rivalry in here. Get yeah, Indiana I think I think the- both of those games are great. Ohio State and Indiana. Those are both. Yeah, fun games. yeah, no doubt. And uh, so that's that'll be on Friday night. And Indiana will come into the game in the top 10 in Ken Palm. They don't play. Until Friday, they have eight days off in between games. They played Bethune Cookman 319 on Ken Palm. They beat him 101 to 49 last Thursday, and they don't play again until this Friday. So a long layoff for Indiana. That's kind of good for them because their stud Trace Jackson Davis has been banged up. Yeah, Trace Jackson Davis, a consensus preseason All-American, somebody who's in the running. He, I mean, he's been up there with Oscar Shibway on list for a potential National Player of the Year candidate. We're talking about somebody that you build your program around and Trace Jackson Davis. Mike Woodson takes over last year on that Indiana program. And you're thinking, is Trace Jackson Davis going to stay? Is he going to leave? Is he going to stay with the new staff? Well, he stays, had a great year, and now he's trying to turn it into an even better year this year to lead an Indiana team that, Moved up to number 12 in the polls this afternoon in the AP poll, if you put any stock into that. Uh, But this is an Indiana team that has shot the ball well to start the season, uh, 40% on their threes in the first two games, but 68% 
from inside the arc. That's sixth in the country, 16th in the country in offensive efficiency, sixth in defensive efficiency. Rick, this is a very good Indiana team. They are the real deal. Well, we think so. And and the rest of the country certainly thinks so right now. Last year, I think they were somewhat disappointing from an offensive standpoint in that they didn't really have enough firepower aside from Trace Jackson Davis. And yeah. I think, you know, you go back to their Ken Palm last season, 95th in offensive efficiency to go with 24th on the defensive end. And they had that stretch late in the, the Big Ten slate where they lost uh, five in a row. So I think a lot of that coincided with some of the issues that they they had offensively and them battling through that. I'm still waiting to see how those issues are going to work themselves out this year against good competition. Through two games against Moorhead State and Bethune-Cookman, they looked great, and Indiana fans are really excited about the idea that they are more than just Trace Jackson Davis this year and that they they do have some other guys like Malik Raynow and Jordan Geronimo and Miller Cop, Kamar Bates. So it's it's kind of one of those things with Indiana this year where it's like I I'm tentatively believing in them, but at the same time, I still need to see it against good competition because uh, I, I think Mike Woodson is a very good defensive minded coach. I'm not sure about his offensive system just yet. And I definitely don't know about the firepower they have aside from Trace Jackson Davis. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. They got to be able to shoot the basketball. They just, they have to be able to shoot. They have to be able to space the floor. And if you're looking at a question mark for Indiana coming into the season, that was the question mark. Can they space the floor? And you're going to see it against their first high-level competition, Xavier's first high-level competition on both sides. Neither team hasn't played a bye game yet. So you're going to see, can can Indiana, plain and simply, can they step out and hit shots on Friday night? Yeah, and Miller Cop, six seven forward is one of the guys that they're really going to be relying on. He's six of eight from beyond the arc to start the year. And, uh, you know, that's that's kind of been, like you said, the big question mark coming in. They haven't gotten much production aside from him from beyond the arc just yet. But uh we will we will see. That is that is going to be to me the big storyline in this game is how does Indiana shoot against Xavier's defense? Because uh, you know Xavier's not going to attempt many three pointers. Xavier is going to yeah. try to battle Indiana inside, and uh, that battle between Jack Nunji and Zach Fremantle and Trace Jackson Davis and Race Thompson for Indiana is really going to be a fun battle to watch inside. And I think it, it's likely to be a good game unless Indiana shoots really well from the outside. If Indiana shoots really well from the outside, then that that really swings this game in favor of the Hoosiers, in my opinion. You and I both picked this game for Indiana in our preseason podcast, Rick. Is there anything in the first week that would sway you over to Xavier, or are you going to stick with Indiana? I'm going to stick with Indiana, but I am definitely impressed with how Xavier started the season, and they've definitely made me more confident in, in some of the issues that I expected them to have aren't going to be as much of a concern. And also I think they're farther along already than I thought they were going to be. Now, maybe we'll see them play against a big 10 opponent on Friday night and we'll feel differently about that. But right now, I think both offensively and defensively, they have looked farther along than, and than where I thought they were, especially after that. I mean, you look at how bad Vanderbilt is. 
Oh, yes. Vanderbilt yes, is 0-2 right. with losses to Memphis and Southern Miss. They just lost to Southern Miss by 12, and they only scored 48 points. So to Yeah, hear my, that, my, roommate, my roommate from college lives in Nashville, and he texted all of us, and he goes, should I go to the Vandy game? The get-in price is ridiculously cheap. And we were like, yeah, sure, go. It was that game. And he goes, that had to have... <laughs> I, te- I texted him after. I go, how was the game? He goes, that had to have been one of the worst basketball games I've ever been to in my life. Right, so to hear that, they lost to that Vanderbilt team in a secret scrimmage by 20. Again, I don't care the fact that it's a secret scrimmage and it means nothing and all of that. It's still a little jarring to hear that they lost to a team like that Vanderbilt team by 20 right before the season starts and think, oh yeah, they're going to be great when the season tips off. It's like, nah, this might may take some time. So I think they have alleviated some of those preseason concerns by the way they've played through the first two bye games. But at the same time, I'm still going to lean towards Indiana here. Yeah, so am I. Ken Palm right now has a two-point spread on the game. They're generally pretty spot on. Uh, It's a a 73-71 score prediction for Indiana over Xavier on Friday night. Generally, the Vegas lines are within a point or two of that, barring like you and I were talking about before the podcast, Rick, any injury news or anything like that, which is something to keep in mind mind as the week goes on because Trace Jackson Davis had a severely sprained thumb, but it basically sounded like the context clues from what Mike Woodson was talking about. It sounded to me like it was as close to being broken as it could be without actually being broken, that it was really hurting him last week, but it sounded like he played through it. I saw some pictures of him dunking. So uh, how much it was hurting him, how much it'll affect him, how much the rest that he has this week helps him. That'll, definitely play into it that they don't have to play somebody this week. Yeah. The problem with the thumb is that it's such a nagging thing. Like anytime you bang it or catch it on someone's Jersey or the net or the rim, the wrong way, or the ball hits it the wrong way, it can just flare right back up on you. So, um, you know, that can cause a lot of pain and really make it difficult to catch and shoot and things like that when you're inside getting banged on, like he will be. So definitely something to watch. Although from all indications, it seems like he's going to be available. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, So Xavier will play Indiana on Friday. That game is scheduled for, I think it's a six o'clock, right? I think Xavier's the first, because there's another Gavit game after. Xavier's the first Gavit game. They play them at six and eight um, on Friday. Yeah, Xavier is at six o'clock on Friday. And then that's the last one before Xavier goes out to Portland and plays in the PK 85 next week. That'll be um, in Florida. And how we'll talk about it on Monday. But how important is that game going to be for Xavier, that Florida game? Because that that spells either some really good opportunities for the weekend or you could be looking at like Portland State or West Virginia twice in a week. I mean, that game against Florida is going to be ridiculously important to set up the Friday and Sunday games. Well, and if you haven't been paying attention to Florida, they just lost today to Florida Atlantic 76-74. So uh, they they are they definitely need to get back on track here, but they don't really have a get right game before then. They've got Florida State at Florida State on Friday, and then their next game will be against Xavier in the the PK eighty five. So it's going to be an interesting road ahead for Todd Golden and his Gators in the first year. You're right. That matchup is going to be big for Xavier. If they can pull off a win right there against a team that might not have it all together just yet, that'll really open up some doors for them to boost that strength of schedule. Yeah, no doubt. All right. We'll talk about that more next week. Uh, Rick, did you have anything else? 
We may have, we probably will have to adjust the podcast recording for next week in terms of time because NKU will be playing Monday night and I will be in Florida. So, not that we won't have a podcast coming out, but it may be earlier in the day or Sunday night or something like that. So, uh, I, yeah, it might be, it might have to be Sunday. Um, just just because of my schedule the rest of the week. So we'll, we'll make it well, work. Yeah, um, but I just point that out to let people know that uh, it might not be the the usual schedule for we're going to try to shoot for Monday nights. That is the the idea for this season. Yes. Once again, what we did last year, but next week that might have to change. And I do just want to give a quick shout out to everybody that subscribed to my show um, rebound rundown. It, I got a lot of great feedback on that. Rick, you've been a great help with that. You'll be on tomorrow. If, if you're, I will be, I don't want to put you on I'll the spot, but it. NKU and UC uh, playing on Wednesday night. So you you'll join me tomorrow night uh, for the show that'll then come out on Wednesday morning. But it's just a daily rundown recap show for uh, all the local area college teams. So uh, appreciate everybody that's subscribed already. And uh, yeah, it's really all I got to say about that. Yeah, it's a good idea because it's like perfect for your commute. You know, if you're getting in the yeah. car for 15 minutes to go do something, that's like the this is how long your podcast is going to be each day. Yeah. So I do like it yeah. for that. Or you're walking the dog. I actually that's how I listened to it today while I was walking the dog. And uh, it was the perfect amount of time for that. So um, check that out and also subscribe musketeerreport.com. We do have a site. We do have a message board. Uh, need to get that <laughs> message out there, apparently, because people aren't aware. That's where this podcast originates from. So sign up for musketeerreport.com. Subscribe to the Rebound Rundown podcast. And uh, thank you all for listening.